Let's pray together. God, I pray for a blessing on this time now. I pray that you will open our hearts and open our ears to your words, that we will find ourselves in your story, that you will invite us into the light where you are known. And God, I pray for an encounter with you this morning and that we will not leave this place unchanged. And so, God, for the things that are distracting, for the things that are um, not of you right now, I pray that you will protect us from those things and that we will hear your voice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ah, when you hear, ah, what do you think of? You think of that satisfying drink after being in the desert too long, that long hike that you've been on and you were just parched and you need water and you, you, you have that drink and it's, ah, it's just satisfying, right? A-H-H. Ah, not really a word, right? But, ah. It's something that we associate with this, this satisfaction, so much so that back in 2013, Coca-Cola started this whole ad campaign called the Ah Effect, where they came up with all these different websites and all these different marketing tools to associate Ah with Coca-Cola. Because that's the only way to satisfy your thirst, right? The Pepsi fans, sorry. And so there was this whole ad campaign that they structured around these, these visual graphics and these apps and these online games, all to get you to associate this satisfying drink of Coca-Cola with the phrase, ah. It was the ah effect. And so today we get to John chapter 4, and we look a few, uh, a little bit longer ago than 2013, to the very first Ah Effect campaign, where we have this water that is satisfying above all other things. It is the drink of choice. It is the one that will parch your thirst. And so we're a few weeks into this series on the Gospel of John where we're, we're really trying to see God through the gift of Jesus, that Jesus comes and reveals for us who God is. And in the reality of Jesus, in the incarnation of Jesus, we begin to see the nature and the character of God, that through the actions of Jesus, we see the actions of God. And so today we get to John chapter 4 where we see the awe effect in full force, where we see the living water that satisfies all thirst. Jesus knew a little bit about water. People who live in the desert know a lot about water because it's a really important resource. You have to make sure that you have enough of it. You have to make sure that you have access to it. So he grew up in a rocky and dry land where he knew firsthand the precious resource that water was. He would have seen his mother and the other women of the village who would have spent many hours collecting water and transporting water for cooking and cleaning and drinking. 
It was incredibly heavy. One pint of water weighs one pound. So a five-gallon bucket of water equals 40 pounds, plus whatever the weight of the thing that held it. They didn't have plastic jugs. And so when Jesus encounters this lone Samaritan woman at a well, it's in the middle of the heat of the day. And it is at this moment where he is tired, and he is parched, and he is looking for a drink, and he encounters this woman, and there's this incredible exchange that happens. As he encounters this woman, he would have appreciated the work that was up against her as she prepared for for getting the water from the well and transporting it back. And so she becomes this dialogue partner with him. And as we read this story and as we immerse ourselves into it, we are the ones that are being called into a belief in Jesus. We find our sto- ourselves in the story, and we're called in to believe. And so I've asked uh, three people to come up here and read this story for us. One is going to be the voice of John, the narrator. One is going to be the voice of Jesus. And one is going to be the voice of the woman. And so if you've ever watched a movie, I'm sure you've had this experience, where you've watched a movie, and you get to the end, and you realize, that was not what I thought I was watching. Right? You, you get to the end of it, and you find out this movie was about something t- completely different. How many of you have seen Star Wars uh, Rogue One? Okay, so if you've seen that movie, you get to the end of it and realize this is not a reboot with new characters for another movie. Um, if you've seen it, you get it. For those of you who haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it for you. But it's, I, I thought I was going into a reboot with all new characters for new merchandise and all these things for multiple movies. And you get to the end of the movie, and you're like, yeah, that's not what that movie was about. <laughs> and there's lots of movies like that. You get to the end of it, and you realize that's not what that movie was about because I had all of these preset expectations of what the story was going to be about. And so as we read through John chapter 4 this morning, I want you to set aside all of your expectations of what you think this story is about because we are going to get to the end of the story, and it may be different than what you thought. It may surprise you what this story is about. And so I want us to listen now through this. Embrace the story, engage in the story, put yourself in the story. So if you guys want to go ahead and come up and read for us. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, also, as did also his sons and his livestock? 
Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship the spirit and in truth. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the people of the town. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So we have this episode where Jesus is traveling north from Jerusalem through Samaria to get to Galilee. And this roadblock is in the way. Samaria is not the place that you want to go. It's not the, the place that you want to be. It's not the place that you want to be caught in. It's this mountainous region that is inhabited by people who had a long rivalry with the Judean Jews. 
And so there is this rift between the two. And, and to say that they didn't like each other is an understatement. This is a centuries-old conflict that has existed between two sets of people. And you have the Samaritans who do not believe in the prophets, and the woman mentions you must be a prophet. They don't believe in the prophets. All they believe in are the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, this Pentateuch. The rest of Scripture is not something that they follow. And so there's this separation between the two, even in their, their core beliefs and their, their core understanding of, of who God is and the relationship that they have with them. And so there is this ongoing hatred that has built up between the two. The Samaritans reject most of the Jewish scripture. Uh, they, they practice different places of worship. And so they have this history that divides them that fragments them. And so it's perfectly reasonable to take a route from Jerusalem to Galilee that would avoid Samaria. It happened frequently because this is not a place that you want to go. But John says Jesus had to go. Jesus did not have to go. When John says Jesus had to go, what he is saying is God's plan is that Jesus would go through Samaria. John uses this throughout his gospel, where he, he uses this phrase, had to, as a connection to God's plan for them. So Jesus had to go through Samaria because it was God's plan. God is up to something. He wants Jesus to have this encounter. And so Jesus had to go through this region. A statement is being made. The Messiah comes not just to Israel, but also to the ones that Israel has marginalized and the ones that Israel has despised. God comes for these as well. And so Jesus arrives at this well. It's the middle of the day, about noon. It's the heat of the day. He's tired. He's worn out. He is obviously thirsty. And he comes to this encounter with this woman, who is also at the well at an odd time of day. It's the heat of the day, and all the other women come to the well in the mornings and the evenings, but she comes to the well in the middle of the day. Jewish men did not initiate contact with an unknown woman. And a Jewish teacher would not have engaged in public conversation with any woman regardless and so add on to that the conflict between the Samaritans. And this is the most taboo of things to be doing. Jesus should not be engaging in this conversation with this woman. But here she is. Jesus engages in this serious breach of tradition, this breach of protocol, and engages in this conversation with her. Jesus will have a conversation with her. And in this conversation, he gives her a sense of dignity and a sense of worth because the conversation is even happening. She is a woman who has a history, who has a language, a religion, an attitude that is all on the margins. And even though she's on the margins, 
Jesus engages in the conversation. And so she shows up in the middle of the day, which means she's also being isolated and marginalized by her own community. Here is a woman who is doubly marginalized. She doesn't even fit in in her community. And this, this really stands in exact opposite of our story of Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus comes at night. She comes during the day. Nicodemus is a man. She is a woman. Nicodemus is on the religious insider's track. He has it all correct and done right, and she is marginalized and on the outside. The two are complete opposites, and she comes into this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus reveals this interesting thing about her. She's got this marriage situation that is not consistent with what would be expected, But that is not where we're going to camp at in this story. Because Jesus does not make an issue of her marital relationship. It's a non-issue. He points it out, and then they move on in the conversation to something completely different. And so we're not going to spend time dissecting who this woman is and how bad she is or how good she is or or what, what she's done in the past, because Jesus doesn't do that. This is a woman, and he's going to have a conversation with this woman. She engages with him further in the conversation, and unlike Nicodemus, she stays in the light and communicates. And so Jesus interacts with her, and he offers something to her. It's the ultimate awe effect. He offers her living water. And in true form, John uses a phrase here that has another double meaning. We talked a lot about double meanings in the story of Nicodemus, and here he uses this phrase, living water, which can have a very physical, earthly meaning, which is is water that is moving. Moving water is is living water, so something that would be in a stream. It's moving. It's not stagnant in in a a well or a lake. But then there's also this other meaning that can be life-giving water that has more of a heavenly aspect to it. And so once again, Jesus is using this earthly language and this heavenly language to come together and use a phrase about his gift for her. And so the woman moves through this understanding of Jesus and this encounter with Jesus. She first sees Jesus as someone who is thirsty. Jesus is someone who needs something from her. But then the relationship shifts, and now she realizes that he has a gift that she needs. And she wants that living water. And so she has this openness to Jesus and and a willingness to engage in conversation with him, regardless of the social and the political and the the religious norms that are, are forced against them. She engages in this conversation regardless. Now, here is a woman who does not even deserve a glance from Jesus, much less the dignity of a conversation and certainly not a gift from him. She doesn't deserve any of that. Norms would say that he should just walk on by. But Jesus stops, and he has this conversation. And so, how do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus as one who needs something from you? And you have to give enough to him. Or do you see Jesus as 
someone who has a gift for you. He has something available to you. Too many times we approach Jesus as someone who we need to give something to. But Jesus flips the conversation and says, no, I have something to give to you. I have this living water to give. And so as Jesus talks with her, he reveals to her God as a source of spiritual renewal. It isn't a location on the mountain. It's not a certain place of worship. It's not a certain tradition. It's not a certain day of the week. It's not any of that. It is the Spirit of God that is being given to her. This is where new life comes from. And so water becomes this symbol of a new reality for her. That it's not on this mountain, it's not in Jerusalem, it is a new reality, a new life that is found. And later on in John, Jesus will define this as the Holy Spirit. And so worship here is is not physical, it's not a, a human activity, it is a heavenly spiritual activity. And we see these two opposing one another constantly in John. The physical is not the physical It's now the spiritual, the heavenly, and this is how we engage with God. And so the the woman doesn't fully understand this. She's a little baffled by what Jesus is saying. Similar to Nicodemus, she asks questions that are, are stuck in the physical instead of the spiritual, but she continues to engage with him anyway. And then something incredible happens. She correctly identifies who Jesus is. She says, you are the Messiah. This is the first person in, in the Gospel of John to, to, make, to, to be able to make this confession, and then Jesus responds to that confession with this very definitive, I am. I am the Messiah. What great privilege this woman has to receive this from Jesus, to say this is who Jesus is, and he acknowledges who he is, to this woman. And so, wherever you find yourself in your faith, are you in a place where you will continue to engage in the conversation with God? Or are you going to stop the conversation and remain in the dark like Nicodemus? This woman continued into the conversation, stayed within the light. And what the woman does next is incredibly surprising. She doesn't just keep it to herself. She doesn't say, oh, I've got to go study it a little bit more. She doesn't say, no, the people in the town don't like me. That's why I'm here at noon. What she does is she leaves her jar, and she goes back into the village, the village that has marginalized her, and she says, I think I found him. I think I found the Messiah. Come and see And so the same village that has pushed her to the fringes now listens to her, hears her testimony, and believes her testimony. And they come out and encounter Jesus for themselves. The revelation of Jesus' identity is is now more important 
to her than anything else. It's more important to her than getting her jar back into town. It's more important to her than, than filling it with water. She leaves everything and all the things that might hold her back, and she goes back into town and shares with others and invites others to participate in a life of faith. She invites them to come and see. She invites them to, to come and experience Jesus for themselves. She has witnessed and she's experienced Jesus. And she wants others to join in that. There's a new excitement to share the discovery that she has. And so the woman goes back into the village and, and the disciples show up and, and, and they say, you need something to eat. And he says, I'm not hungry because I have bread that you don't even know about, and uses the metaphor again. But this time he talks about the harvest being plentiful, and that as his followers, as his disciples, there is a harvest that is ready to be reaped, and there, there, is, there is a work to be done, that as disciples there is a next step. That, the, that it has been prepared for you, and it is time to go out and do something. In the same way that the woman goes into the village because the harvest is ready, the harvest is ready for you, go out and do the work. The woman is this incredible example of discipleship for us. One who hears and experiences Jesus has an encounter with him, has an experience with him, and takes that message to others. Regardless of her background, regardless of her reputation, regardless of her place in society, regardless of her lack of education or her training or her experience, she goes and shares the message with others. And so this story has a lot to tell us about discipleship about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, one who experiences him and, and sees the light and walks into the light. It gives us a message for today. It says that, that the conventional expectations and, and the status quo were to be challenged. That there were certain rules that were to be followed, and Jesus broke those rules because the living water was more important than the societal norms. It was more important than the political system. It was more important than the sociological environment. It was more important than race. It was more important than gender. It was more important than location. The living water supersedes all of those things. And so the boundary between the chosen people and the rejected people, the boundary between male and female, the boundary between religious and non-religious, even, even between the sinner and the saints, all of these boundaries are being challenged. Jesus is breaking down these. Her ethnicity, her religious history, her gender should have all built a wall between her and Jesus. But Jesus crashes through those barriers. This woman needs water. And Jesus doesn't care what it takes to get it to her. She needs to experience the Christ. 
She needs to experience the Son of God. She needs new life. She needs to be born again, born from above, and Jesus does whatever it takes to get to her. Jesus initiates contact with her, the Samaritan woman, and he offers her the gift of God and reveals God's true identity to her. And so Jesus treats this marginalized woman and later the villagers, he treats them as full human beings, as ones worthy of respect and worthy of being engaged with, worthy of conversation, worthy of the living water. And throughout history, and it's not a stretch to think about, even in recent history, like 24 hours, people and nations define themselves over and against other groups. They fear contamination. They fear sharing their gifts of privilege. And Jesus crosses over that boundary and challenges those boundaries. The woman, the disciples, the villagers, they all receive this gift from Jesus that supersedes their conventional assumptions and their understanding of reality. He redefines for us what it means to be alive. He redefines for us life. And so because Jesus was willing to, to cross over those lines, this woman receives the gift of living water. And with that, she becomes a model to us. She becomes an example because she becomes this unexpected evangelist. One who takes the message of Jesus and shares with others. She shares it with a town that had pushed her to the edge of their community. And the reality of God's presence in Jesus is transformative for us. It redefines what is earthly and it replaces it with something that is heavenly. That, that the earthly has boundaries, the earthly has categories, the earthly has hierarchies, the, the earthly has certain political structures. The heavenly provides real life. And as ones that are called into the kingdom of God, we are called into that new life that supersedes all boundaries and all borders. And so what will you do with Jesus when he approaches you at the well and he tells you everything that you have done and he unveils all of your secrets and shows you for what you are? Will you say, how do I worship you? How do I engage in a relationship with you? How do I follow you? How will I be transformed by you? Or will you be Nicodemus and stay in the twilight and just move on? 
She has opened herself to Jesus. She's allowed herself to be transformed by who he is, by his true identity. And he waits by the well for you, wanting to know if you will do the same. Will you drink of the water? And so what are the political, what are the cultural boundaries that stand between us and the ones God has called us to serve? What social, what economic, what political boundaries do we need to cross? This woman gets it right. She says, I don't care what they've said about me. I don't care what they've done to me. That's Jesus. And he has the living water. And so what risk will you take? What risk will you take to get the water to those who need it? So this is a story, a text, that has been on the calendar for some time to be preached today. And we find ourselves in an environment that is challenging. Where if we were to poll the people in the room, we would be shocked at how extreme to the left and the right people are here. Because we seem to think everybody thinks like us but I think you'll be surprised at how diverse the room is. And so I want to just make a side note for a moment. How we get engage with each other and how we engage in the dialogue and the discourse is important. Because Jesus has said that his disciples will be known by their love by their unity. And Satan will use whatever he can to still kill and divide and take the life from us. And I think maybe Facebook is sucking the life out of us. Really. Because the things that we will say to each other and about one another on Facebook is appalling. As ones who will be marked by love, ones who are marked by unity, ones who are marked by a kingdom that brings life. And so do your words give life, or do they take it away? Because Jesus is here to give life. And we may be on all different places as to what should happen on the Mexican border, and we may be in different places as what should happen with health care, and we may be in different places as to who the president should or should not be. We will find ourselves in different places, but we cannot engage with our brothers and sisters in a way that takes life. And that's not just political, it's relational. We will say things on Facebook that should not be said. We will say things on Facebook that will not be said to a person's face. And that is not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus treats this woman with dignity and respect. And she is the lowest of low on the social ladder. She is one that most of us would just walk right past. But Jesus engages with her. 
and says, I have life for you. Let's stand together. This is a time for us to pray with one another. It's a time for us to encourage one another. Because prayer is life-giving, because prayer connects us to the Spirit of God, and where the Spirit of God is, there is life. And so I want to encourage you to engage in this time, whether it's as an individual, as a family, as a small group, if you want to come down front and pray with one of the shepherds, or, or go to the back and pray with a group, this is a time for us to engage with God in where we're at. And we ask that God will parch our thirst, that he will give us a drink, because, man, my mouth is dry right now. This world is sucking the life out of me, and I need to be filled up with the water. Ah, take a drink. It's there for all of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, and we thank you for this incredible story that would challenge us and call us into a place that is frankly uncomfortable and scary. And God, I pray that you will continue to work in us to make us into what you have called us to be, that you will give us the courage, that you will give us the strength, that you will give us the imagination to be ones that will go into that village and proclaim we found him. We found Jesus. Come and drink. It's in his name we pray, amen.